All right, American part, American literature part three. Um, today I wanted to cover, go into more depth. So I mentioned the influence of the five major, well, I guess the four major influences on American literary history and American cultural history generally, which of course translates into American literary history. And today I wanted to focus on religion, but because it's Indigenous Peoples Day, I thought it would also be a good time to reflect on that aspect of the North American content, con continent, which has had very limited influence actually on our culture until um, relatively recently, which I'll mention when I want to get there. So first, I want to talk about religion. Now, religion in the United States has always been a strange affair, which I, which I mentioned in the first lecture, because you have different populations with different religious sentiments, different approaches to religion, all coming to a new place where there is no set rules governing how religion is going to be implemented. Most of Europe, where most of the settlers were coming from, had had very strong legal and also cultural mores about how religion worked, how you related to it, what your obligations were. Again, sometimes this was legal, but you know, at its core, this was really long-standing cultural traditions built into the fabrics of communities and the way people lived, and even the architecture of buildings and cathedrals and parks, and so on. In the New World, none of that existed, so it was to be made new, as it were. Now, what this meant was a strange collection of many different religions. So, you know, you have everything from Maryland, which was famously originally founded as a colony for kind of a Catholic safe haven. And so because they were fleeing religious intolerance, they were, I think, the only colony, I could be wrong about that, but I think they were the only colony that was expressly uh, allowed all religion. I think Pennsylvania may have done the same thing too because they were the Quakers. Yeah, so Pennsylvania, the Penn family, and Maryland, uh, Maryland because they were fleeing Catholics who wanted to have a place where they could... Uh, practice Catholicism without being mistreated, but also wanted to allow other people to have the freedom to pursue their own religion. And Pennsylvania, because they're predominantly Quakers, was founded, and the Quakers have sort of a, a tolerance as, as an inbuilt theory of their whole program. Both had uh, religious freedom as sort of a central idea, even though very different versions of, of religion there. The, the, but, I mean, Maryland is sort of the great example because eventually uh, a group of, of Puritans became dominant in the political structure of Maryland, and then they repealed that, and they said, you know, they, they, they made Puritanism the official religion of Maryland and did not allow for the free exercise of, of religious choice. So, you know, that sort of the, encapsulates the kind of the American religious history right there is this war over what, what is religious, who gets to be religious, what kind of aspects of religion there are. Um, <clears throat> and then you have, uh, you know, the New York area, sort of the Northeast, you had sort of Calvinism, um, you had the Congregationalists, particularly, you know, Maine, this kind of area. You have Quakers, again, in Pennsylvania, you have Lutherans, you have Anglicans, you know, Anglicans and Lutheranism, all so just spread throughout the country, different groups. Then, of course, as you know, at now time as time moves forward, you have in Florida, where you have the Spanish influence and the Creole influence, and then of course when you get to the American Southwest, where you have very strong um, Catholic and uh, Native influences, 
you have this just sort of rolling confluence of conflict about religion, who is religious, what religions count, um, what are the legal strictures around religion, how are they going to be interpreted. And if you go to any history of the Supreme Court and Supreme Court cases, I would, I mean, I'd, basically there's always a Supreme Court case about religion every year. I mean, I, I, there might there may be a year where there hasn't been one. Several, many years there are several, and this is, goes all the way back because you have several competing problems here. When you don't agree about what the main religion is, now you have to decide, well, does what happens when two religious um, practices, in, you know, uh, conflict with each other? And so you might have uh, the, the Catholics say, okay, we're going to have at Mass, you're going to drink wine. And you might have the Puritans say alcohol is absolutely illegal. So we tend to think in the modern world that it's religious legal battles are between people who want to be religious and against a bunch of atheists or free thinkers or these sorts of rotten people, right? And and that is incorrect. Almost all of these cases, and particularly historically, have been one religious group pitted against another religious group. When you don't have a single dominant religion that sets the rules for everybody, it sets up this massive conflict of religious beliefs and practices and ideas and whose ideas get to take dominant at any given place at any given time. So there's been an unbelievable number of, of cases about things like prayers at, say, football games. This is always a great one, right? If they're going to have a prayer before a football game, well, who gets to pray? You know, one, should there be a public prayer before a football game? That's been to Supreme Court several times. And if there is going to be a prayer before a football game, does every, you know, how do you decide who gets to pray? And it's like, you know, community, this tends to make communities nervous. They're like, oh, well, we don't want, well, do we want to let the Muslims have a prayer before the football game? That doesn't seem like a good idea. Maybe it does, right? Depending on the community you're in. Maybe we don't want the Catholics to pray. Do we want the Jews? Do they get to come out and pray before? How about the Native Americans? What about the Satanists? Do the Satanists get to come out and say a prayer before a football game? Ooh, and then how do we, do we rotate? Is it on a seasonal schedule? Wow. And so the conflict in American history, while there has been some secular versus religion conflict, I think this mis, it's a gross misunderstanding of our cultural tradition. Much more of our cultural tradition has been these interdenominational battles about what is going to be supported, what not is going to be, what is not going to be supported. And the secular aspect of it, which is to say, let all the religions live together, has run into the religious aspect of it, which many of the religions, not all of them, of course, say we don't want all the religions to give to get, live together. We want our concept of religion to dominate all of the others. So there's this, you know, different regions, different time periods, of course, and then all these legal and cultural ramifications for, wow, what counts, what's going to be available. When I was, at, I went to graduate school at Indiana University, it was the first time I encountered blue laws because they, they still had blue laws about when alcohol could be served, when bars could be opened, you know, all, you know, that were seemed odd. Like, I think, I think you could not buy alcohol. When I first moved there, I'm pretty sure you could not buy alcohol at all on Sunday. That was totally not allowed. And then while we were there, it changed a little bit so that bars could sell some alcohol on Sunday. Anyway, it was just, it seemed crazy from the outside. Like, well, why can't you buy alcohol anytime? But because, of course, these strong religious uh, tendencies that that gave us things like, you know, the, the complete 
you know, alcohol was illegal for a while in the United States. You couldn't, you know, couldn't sell it. So that sort of prohibition tradition ran into other kinds of traditions and social practices. And these, this is still being argued out, of course, today and probably isn't going to go away anytime soon. So for our purposes, when you look at American literature, um, one, one reason that it's such a central part of Ishmael Reed's Mumbo Jumbo is because, you know, religion has been such a key part. He's exploring the sort of more, I don't know if you call it native religion, but the voodoo traditions that have grown up, the spiritual practices that grew up over around slavery, West African traditions, and this very different from the European tradition vision of of um, religion. And again, there's been many court cases about this. Can you sacrifice animals? In the Old Testament, they sacrificed thousands, millions of animals all the time being sacrificed. At some point, New Testament people said, okay, we don't want to do that anymore. And so, well, they had prohibitions against animal sacrifice in a lot of places. But what if your religion says you're supposed to sacrifice animals? And, you know, sort of like they said, oh, you know, can you pray in school? And it's like, well, can I get up and cut the head off a chicken in school if that's the way I pray? you know, answer, no, they don't want you to do that. So, I mean, these are, this is ongoing, rolling litigation, cultural battles about what is religion, how do you understand it, how does it incorporate it into your life. Again, not going away anytime soon. But when you look at someone like Ishmael Reed, this is why he's so heavily focused on in, in mumbo jumbo on voodoo and these various spiritual practices around something like that. You have, and of course, he has Islam is in there. He has several other uh, main main ideas in there, but basically, almost every American author is is in some way enmeshed in this. Flannery O'Connor, of course, famously, if we even look more contemporary authors, Don DeLillo, um, Roth, uh, O'Connor, gosh, I mean, I'm trying to think. The list is just practically endless. It's, there's just just pretty much everybody. Hard to avoid in any significant way trying to address this subject because it's so vexed so um, and so embedded in American culture, which is sort of the last thing I want to note about this is it's because we live, you know, in our, in our life, in our world where we are, it's, it's odd to note that for a modern industrialized world, we are definitely one of the most religious countries in the world. I mean, our, our church attendance, money given, whatever metric you want to use, um, we're very, very, we rate as very religious, particularly for a, a modern industrialized country. But what's peculiar about the United States, not only are we very religious, but we are incredibly diverse in our religious practices. If you look at a country like Italy, fairly, fairly religious, you know, they're up there with us, but mostly, and certainly the dominant religious mode is, is Catholicism for, you know, obvious historical reasons. In the United States, there is no dominant historical mode. There is, it's always been this vexed mix. And, and in just in case, as I mentioned, this is part of what's going on when I talked about the migrations that were coming in the United States. When you get the big migrations right around 1900, 1880s, you know, to, to 1915, that big wave that came in, a lot of, lot of Jews, right? So this burgeoned the Jewish population, which had been here the whole time, but, you know, now had really a, a much bigger demographic impact also a lot of Catholics. And so, again, Maryland founded as a Catholic colony. It's not that the Catholics hadn't been here, but, you know, a couple hundred years later, all of a sudden you get this really big influx, millions of new Catholics. And so it establishes this, you know, much greater cultural presence. 
and that sort of continual evolution. And again, when you when the you know the Mexican American War, America takes uh, conquers new territory that incorporate a large Catholic you know population because of course they were part of Spain that history going all the way back. So, you know, that, you know, had Catholics sort of coming into the United States in two very different ways, two very different populations, two very different cultural traditions, but sharing this uh, strong, strong history and cultural tradition of Catholicism. And that sort of continual evolution of our, of our structure has it spoken to influence the thinking of basically every, you know, serious American writer. Again, e even when, um, I'm trying to think of examples of like if if anybody's read the Mona Lisa Overdrive, or God, I'm trying to it's a it, it's a trilogy. It's set in a very modern world. It's very modern uh, writing. It's sort of steampunk. I don't know. There's you know techno future Jewish science fiction. Uh, William Gibson, by the way, is the author. Lots and lots of that have religious themes. If you look outside of um, of literature to something like movies, the Matrix movies, which I'm, I'm assuming many people have seen, I mean, those are just, you know, religious eschatology given incredibly cool CGI uh, dynamics, apparently, you know, that just it's, what else is there? There's just that all of these, I mean, I think the place they're staying is even called like New Eden or some crazy stuff like that, right? So it's all this uh, cultural, historical, religious references sort of mashed together in this techno cyber future. Because even when American writers imagine a future, it tends to have these very strong cultural religious themes, even when the writers themselves are not religious. This is not necessarily like someone like Flannery O'Connor, who is a very deeply, devoutly religious person. It doesn't seem surprising to find that in her writing. However, when you find someone like a William Gibson or whoever the hell wrote the Matrix stuff, they're still feeling that and using those dynamics because it is so strong in American culture. You can read modern French novels or contemporary Spanish novels, and even though they come from, both of those would be uh, strongly Catholic countries, the modern ethos for them does not have that vexed religious content. It's not nearly so prominent in many of the writers. I mean, of course, you can find writers where it is prominent, but it's not so consistently there. So when you think about American literature and you think about American cultural influences, you always need to keep these kinds of, uh, that, that American religious sort of turmoil uh, energy in mind because it's going to be there even when you get to like the beats and the and the post beats writers so now we're moving you know post 50s 60s all of a sudden you encounter the west coast buddhist writers so they didn't go to the west coast and go oh we're done with um you know religion we're all free love out here it's all you know nature and woo no this is when you start getting the influence of like native cultural ideas into uh, american sort of mainstream but also you get buddhism it's not that we don't go from religion to atheism although we do some of that in the united states mostly we just chop around from one religion to another so it's a very interesting uh, dynamic that informs a lot of what we're going to read, what we've already read, and a lot of what we are going to read in the future. So, and again, because Indigenous Peoples Days, let's spend a moment there. One of the, so the Americas generally, North America in specific, was this vast, um, no one knows how many, it's very hard to determine from archaeological records how many Native 
peoples there were in the Americas pre-Columbus. I mean, that's the, the estimates truly vary dramatically from, you know, 50-ish million, 100 million could have been more. Um, so, yeah, yes, just really hard to know. But if you, if you take 50 to 100 million as maybe a rough consensus, that's a, you know, that's a very large uh, number of people spread out over a large land area, of course, but also incredibly diverse. This is one thing I just want to keep coming back to because I think it's often overlooked. This was not, there were not Native Americans. People often say this, oh, well, the, the Natives were like this or the American, they were like, this. no, they weren't like anything. They were like everything. And when it was an encyclopedic entry of the possibility of human creative endeavor, just if it was imaginable, they did. They built massive pyramids. They lived in long houses. They did cave dwelling. I mean, they built large structures. Whatever is possible, you can find examples, many examples of it, basically, in, in the New World uh, amongst the Native communities. So, you know, just to reinforce that diversity. And then the number of language groups is just mind-boggling. I mean, there were just, this was not one contiguous group of nearly, you know, closely related languages. This was a whole series of spectacularly different and rich and interesting languages. In fact, I think if anybody's interested in this subject, one thing that really needs to be done is like massive amounts of works on the linguistic history because there is enough evidence that some of these some of these languages are still living, by the way, which is crucial. So those need to be recorded, documented, and grown if possible. And then there's enough evidence for their related languages and some written evidence that they can be reconstructed, at least in part. And so, you know, you can kind of piece together this massive linguistic diversity that was here in the North American continent and in the Americas entirely, but North America and particularly for American literature that has had, you know, beginning um, really by in the 60s started to have more influence on the general outlook of, of, of American literary and cultural phenomenon. So those, those aspects have been tremendously overlooked. But uh, they shouldn't be, and again, hopefully they're starting to surface. Where in my old own area where I live, we have the Salish peoples, which is a linguistic group that has, you know, again, hugely varied. And people say, oh, the Americans, you know, everyone says, oh, they imagine they're riding horses on the plains. Horses had been extinct for many, many, I think, I forget how long, many thousands of years in the Americas until the Spanish brought them. So when you see the classic Western film with a Native American riding a horse, I mean, that's true. They did ride horses when they got access to them, but this is not necessarily traditional Native American, although it became traditional, right? How long does it take for something to become traditional? But what you never see is like the Northwest American Indians because they were living, you know, spectacular art, amazing boats, uh, incredibly wealthy. I always think if I have to come back any time in history outside of the modern world, I think I would want to be, you know, like amongst the Macaw people or something because they're just... The diversity, the wealth, the beauty of their work, the scale. I mean, they did they did epic construction, and they had you know they're primarily because you had salmon and the other fisheries here. They were able to sustain fairly large populations and do really impressive amounts of work. And those cultures, some of which still exist, again, I mean, these are not all uh, extinct, but that kind of amazing work was done all over the all over the, the North American continent. And we just tend to forget about it, or when we think about it, 
we tend to homogenize it and say, oh, it was one thing, which is, again, it, by the way, this is shared with something we do with religion. We tend not to actually ever talk about the content of religion in the United States, and I think this is a cultural response to the notion that we know there's so much conflict about it, and you don't want conflict. And so if you go, oh, you're religious, yeah, I'm religious. Oh, you believe in something, I believe in something. Okay, great. So we, we'll just pretend like we agree. In fact, statistically, you probably don't agree about anything. But the idea is that, oh, at least there's some religious shared value. There's no evidence that this is true, which is why, again, no one ever talks about the content of religion, or it's rare. Mostly we just say, oh, well, they're a religious or a not religious person, as if that tells us something meaningful, which generally it doesn't at all. I think that tendency to try to homogenize and pretend like something that's incredibly complicated is actually something simple. We've done the same thing with Native American cultural history is that we sort of have this, I don't know, sort of imaginary world where uh, it was all very simple and they were hunting or something. I don't, I don't know. Actually, it's just sort of this very vague sense of some simple, you know, you know, noble people living out there in the Southwest Plains or some such which there were noble people living in the Southwest Plains, but they were also building pyramids in Florida, which may have been an offshoot of the Mayan civilization, very controversial, no one knows, but they were building very large pyramids in uh, Florida. Um, you have, you know, with the hunting, trapping uh, elk people up in, you know, what now Canada, right up in this region, which are living, you know, the Inuits further north, I mean, who are living completely different than, you know, the Macaw people, or, you know, Choctaw or on the, on the East Coast, right? I mean, these are just totally different civilizations. And I, and I think we lose a lot of our own history and our own culture and our own, you know, um, this, this, this incredible space that we inhabit when we forget that, hey, the, the, the history didn't start in 1776 or 1642 or 1550. It started... 10,000 years ago, whenever that land bridge was able to be crossed and amazing stuff started to happen. So in both cases, both with our, uh, the, the Native American tradition and here on Indigenous Peoples Days and with our religious tradition, I think it's important to remember that they're vastly more complex, subtle, and interesting than we tend to give them credit for. And particularly with our religious history, that is so deeply and profoundly influential that when we oversimplify it or just sort of stop thinking about it, we really misunderstand a lot of what's going on in our own world. And most importantly, for the purpose of the class, we're going to miss a lot of what's going on in these stories, uh, poems, novels, plays, etc. So thank you.